You're listening to Fly By Night, a podcast by FedEx Pilots for FedEx Pilots. Brought to you by the FedEx Master Executive Council of the Airline Pilots Association. And now, here's your host, MEC Communications Chairman, Captain Chris Lee. My guests today are MEC Chairman, Captain Pete Harmon, MEC Vice Chairman, Captain Dave Chase, and Negotiating Committee Chairman, Captain Pat May. Thanks for coming, guys. Glad to be here. Welcome. Hey, Chris. No doubt the global impact of the coronavirus is having significant effect on our pilots. These are certainly very challenging times. Let's talk about how the association advocates for the health, safety, and security of our pilots. Pete, why don't you first talk about the coronavirus team that you established? Well, the first thing we needed to do was to understand that uh, our pilots were starving for information. But in order to provide timely and accurate information, we needed to put a team together that was able to gather the information, sort through what was valid, sort through what needed to be prioritized, and put it out to the pilots. We put together a team involving representation, the staff attorneys, the officers, of course, our comm staff. We brought in the uh, PSIT folks, scheduling. We uh, noticed an immediate uptick in the number of PDRs, and so we brought in the SPSC chairman to help answer PDRs, and then we brought in our P2P chairman. We're getting the group together. We're running through the PDRs. We're running through the scheduling challenges. We're running through the changing times as the company receives new governmental rules and regulations that force them to implement changes. And we take that leadership team and we take that input and we then are able to prioritize our goals and figure out what problems need to be addressed most immediately. Pat, let's talk about the purpose of the original OIM. Chris, the original OIM Keep in mind now that it's March and we're just a month into the the OIM itself, but the original purpose was to stabilize a a very destabilizing virus that was rapidly evolving, and there was a lot of unknowns for both the company and our pilots, and we got into a negotiation. The company was willing to address our concerns, and they had their concerns as well, but it was meant to really just stabilize the situation initially. We realized it wasn't a long-term or long-duration OIM, but it was to both stabilize it for the company's perspective as far as their operation in and out of China, and specifically, we have pilots based in Hong Kong. And then the second aspect of it, it was to provide a means for our pilots to actually decline flying into mainland China, into those hot zones, if you will. UPS had just come out with their agreement. United had um, already announced some flight cancellations, and there was other restrictions throughout the airline industry. But essentially, you could see the wave of what was going on as far as deferring or allowing pilots to step away or step back from that type of flying, that exposure to those hot zones. And the last piece of that, Chris, of the OIM was pilots that were taking that extra risk. There was some added pay that was brought to the table, and we negotiated credit hour increases to those areas in which you'd be laying over in the designated hot zones. We're getting a lot of PDRs, and we definitely want to thank the pilots for their continued submissions. Are there any overall themes you're seeing from the PDRs we're receiving? I would say the overall theme is that it's very difficult out there, and the pilots are having a difficult time, but they're doing an amazing job of meeting the daily challenges. We're seeing uh, thousands of revisions to pairings. You can almost count on your pairing being advisory only in nature as you block out in the international arena these days. We're also seeing fatiguing pairing construction coming up as, a, as an issue. There's been some fatiguing ground transportation events, particularly with the, the China and Hong Kong border crossing. Some of those are taking hours. People intermixed with the general populace as they're going through. So those are trying to be addressed. 
We've noticed inadequate rest facilities is a big problem, and additionally, people uh, deadheading are coming back, and there were some issues with regards to whether or not they were included in or exempt from the CDC screening requirements that the general passengers were. So we've tried to put out communications on that as well so that people know they are exempt as uh, pilots. But I think the overall theme is this is the most challenging environment the FedEx of pilots have had to endure. Certainly in, in my almost 25 years at the company, I've never seen anything as challenging as this. And our pilots are doing an amazing job stepping up to the plate and, and overcoming these challenges. And the thing I would add is that our pilots are willing to go long distance for this company. But an overwhelming theme we're seeing is the lack of a plan from the corporation. And they'd like to be included in the plan so that they know that the uh, issues they're dealing with out in the field, that management understands them beyond some of the cheerleading they're seeing in the company communication. We would expect FedEx to be more proactive with this information. This is a challenge for our pilots, and they know it's a challenge for the corporation, and they're proud employees. But as this crisis has evolved, it's not a fast moving, it's not a hurricane, it's not an earthquake. And they just want to be advised as it moves along how challenges will be dealt with, and they don't want every challenge to fall on their back, that it'll be a new thing they have to absorb so that the operation remains exactly as it was before the crisis started. They just see the company maintaining everything they've been doing up to this point with additional restrictions on their lives. Well, let's talk about some specific issues that we're seeing from the PDRs. Uh, One of them is transit hotels. What can you tell me about that? First of all, I want to say that we remain firm in our stance that the transit hotels that we've been put in have been onerous to the pilots. Most troublesome has been the Taipei Premium Lounge, not even a hotel, but a premium lounge, where it's set up so that travelers on long layovers between flights out in the Pacific can go and get a couple hours rest in a bed. We initially found ourselves in rooms where we were sharing bathrooms with other guests in the premium lounge unable to control the room temperature, 60-degree room temperature. Guys were running the showers. We found that noise was incredibly difficult to overcome. They were hearing everything from 6 in the morning to 11 at night, all the airport and gate announcements. They were being awakened by conversations in the lounge, being awakened by people either on the telephone or watching a movie in, in the room next to them because the walls are reported to be, quote, paper thin, unquote. We raised that to the vice president of flight operations. At that point in time, I explained to him how challenging this was for our pilots to get adequate rest and exercise and nutrition as the company messages addressed. said that that this is a very difficult situation and we just find it inadequate. And we asked him for a system form change. So we're still waiting on a formal response from that. They sent somebody out to Taipei to look at the premium lounge and they came back and they presented some of the mitigations that they've undertaken. And to the degree that they've done these things, which is over the next seven weeks, they've bought every room in the place. So essentially the only people in there are going to be FedEx pilots with the exception of, I think, six or seven periods where somebody is already pre-booked and paid for the room that they couldn't cancel, there will only be FedEx pilots in there. So that's helpful. They've uh, also assured that if a FedEx pilot comes in and there isn't a double room available, which is the one with the private bath, that they would be put in a single room for the four or five hours or whatever it takes until they can move somebody into that double room and they will move them in there immediately. We stated that we thought any type of layover beyond a a hub turn type five-hour layover to get a quick nap would be troublesome and we would like to see that our pilots get out of there as quickly as possible. And the company did state at the time that they too would like to get out of that facility. They're continuing to try and work with the regulators in order to get back to the normal layover hotel as quickly as possible. They've stated they don't have any intention to keep us in that 
terminal premium lounge any longer than they have to. But uh, we say that even in the interim, that's troublesome. It needs to be a touch Taiwan. If you've got five hours, put them in the premium lounge. Anything more than that, it's just not an acceptable layover facility. We know there's challenges, but this is an example of a time where rather than seek a change to the system form to mitigate the problem, they're still leaving guys in a, in a long layover during the exact same form they had before, even though it's not an appropriate layover facility. So how's the union handling this particular issue? The first thing that we did was we did ask for a meeting with the VP of Flight Ops, and we've got that meeting. But we also went the traditional disputed pairing route with the scheduling improvement team. Those pairings that involved the Taiwan Premium Lounge layover were placed in dispute. Therefore, they couldn't be added to the regular bid packs. They would only have to be on trips specifically requested. There is a limit, however, to 5% per bid pack. So we were only able to dispute 5% of a given bid pack with those pairings. So there are some Taipei premium lounge layovers that are not disputed, but that's only because we hit the ceiling limit on what could be done. And the other part I would add to that is as the pairings are built, the first layover could be in Taipei. And we did not dispute that type of pairing because we do not know that the pilot won't be unable to go to the downtown hotel at the Grand Hyatt. We only know that if the pairing design itself required you to stay at the transit hotel, we felt that needed to be disputed. And so that's an important distinction that pilots need to understand. Not only was there a limit, but there was a pairing construction look that we made on each pairing for this build. We have an article in CHOP that'll be coming out to help pilots understand the difference between a traditional dispute and a fatigue dispute. That's a change that was made in the last contract, and some of our pilots have not really had a chance to see a traditional dispute. So we do have an article that they can use to reference the difference in how those are treated. Another issue we're seeing from the PDRs is the hotel confinement issue. What's the association's position on that? We strongly oppose a pilot having to go into a layover and being confined to a room for the duration of his layover. We find that onerous and unacceptable. We understand that governmental regulations and changes with regards to people entering or leaving a country may have added this requirement to the company. We're disappointed that the company didn't engage ALPA and the scheduling folks to go, what can we do to mitigate or avoid this or fix this somehow? Hotel confinement is another example of a time where the company could come to us and explain why the system form can't be changed that requires it and we could talk about ways to mitigate whether it's further down line in the pairing or it's the length of the layover or a way you depart the city as soon as possible we're willing to have those discussions the company instead is choosing that each and every time the restriction gets placed it gets placed on the back of the pilot and the layovers remain in place with the pilot stuck in their room yeah, pilots are showing an enormous amount of flexibility under the current crisis, right? They're still flying these trips. They're still subjecting themselves to what isn't the norm as far as contractual language, right? But we can't point to anything specific in the contract and say the company is violating X. But you know from our previous history in what was expected as far as a normal traditional layover, pilots wouldn't be confined to the room. So is there a reasonable expectation for pilots to believe that that shouldn't be the case, even in light of the virus and the, the restrictions that are being placed throughout each country? And I think there is a reasonableness or an expectation of reasonableness that comes along with that. You know, so is 18 hours behind the door something that's reasonable? Well, it could be under the current conditions, but where does it become unreasonable? And that's that that common sense application that needs to be really vetted out and discussed hasn't happened, right? So the company just institutes the change, and now you see layovers 
that are three, four, and five days long where pilots are confined to their room. Totally unacceptable from our standpoint. Completely unacceptable. And the company needs to make a change to that. They need to adapt either the system form, like Dave mentioned, or they need to get compliance through the, the regulators in the country, or they need to make an avenue for the pilots to have a swap out in that layover. If it's exceeding 24 hours, clearly there's some ability to get another crew in place or to have some type of a swap out of pilots, one coming in, one going out. They have to think outside the box. And that's it. They're stiff in their construction of these pairings. They're not helping pilots mitigate these. They're just putting it on each and every pilot every time. Do you get a sense that the company's playing whack-a-mole and just fixing problems on a one-off basis instead of having an actual broad strategy or plan? There's no doubt it's crisis management, right? I mean, for every adaptation they make and that we make or our pilots are making to make this work, to move packages, a new country rule or restriction gets moved in place, a new and onerous potentially restriction that ends up falling on the backs of the pilots. And that's why we strongly believe that the company has to come back to the table and sit down and meet with us again to discuss a more global solution that does have a plan. Because I can tell you the company doesn't have a long-term plan because of the daily crisis management mode that they're in. And they're expending enormous resources to deal with those on a day-in and day-out operation, but it hasn't fixed anything long-term for the pilots and or the operation and that's why we're telling FedEx, and we've highlighted these issues to them, and said, look, come back, sit down, and meet with us. Talk to us about what your issues are. We'll explain to you what the pilot's issues and concerns are, and let's come to a better solution that's more durable than the original OIM, something that can adapt and move like the virus is moving. Everybody understands it's evolving, and everybody wants to set up something that can evolve with it, and that's not what we're seeing right now. I think Dave said it well up front. Pilots are proud employees, and they're willing to go to great lengths and be very flexible to keep this operation going and keep their paychecks coming and make the company successful. But the company has an obligation to engage us to help solve these problems, and they'll find that we have very smart people that are great assets that will help them work through these issues and help create a plan that can then be communicated to the pilots from both sides. And that will create not only better buy-in, but better solutions that'll, that'll make this work. Country restrictions that cause well, maybe one layover here or there that looks onerous, there may be a solution that's acceptable in one place, but it can't become part of the answer everywhere you go, and it's built into every pairing design and every layover. Another issue we're seeing are the fatiguing flight sequences. What can you tell me about that? Well, that one's frustrating for us because of the past fatigue risk management work that's been done between both parties. I know that I've been in meetings with management where they express some pride in the work that group has done. We bargained for that in our collective bargaining agreement as a way to end those traditional disputes in the past, a way to look at pairings and build safer, less fatiguing pairings for our pilots. We um, engaged on that. We asked our pilots to volunteer and do data collection. This pairing design in particular has been concerning for quite a while to the point that we've done two separate data collection events on it. It became a FERC parameter. I encourage the pilots to go right onto the company's website and look at the Fatigue Risk Management Group webpage where the FERC parameters, the Fatigue Event Review Committee parameters are placed. Uh, we linked that in some recent communications. Um, you can go right on there and see that this type of pairing design was not allowed to be put into a scheduled pairing, but the company is now using the... 767 crew rest facility as what they're calling a mitigation and 
they are violating the build parameter through a trip revision, and we don't believe that's appropriate. The revisions are particularly frustrating. Again, they're not looking at any of the fatigue parameters in the revisions, and that's so frustrating to see. The specific FERC parameter that's violated there, the 7-Eleven or the duty time, you're operating into a sort facility, and then you have three legs after a crew rest you're operating out, and the duty time to crew rest time exceeds the 7-Eleven. So that's the actual limitation that they're failing to achieve in that pairing design. But look, if it was illegal to begin with when it was going into a regular line, how does that same application of a safety and fatigue test, how does that not apply after the lines are built? Right, And you can just simply ignore all those rules and what's been set in place to make our system more safe because the nature of the operation has demanded that, to me, that's not the safest avenue, right? There's smarter ways to do that. We have a FERC parameter. Data was collected, and now they're violating it in the trip revision process. Let's talk about your recent message on jump seating and PSC authority. We've received a number of PDRs from pilots wondering, do they have the authority to ask a jump seater not to ride? Of course they do. The pilot in command always has the ultimate authority as to who is able to ride in the cockpit or not. It's clearly stated in the FARs, and it's clearly stated in the FOM. If you have concerns as to whether or not somebody may be infected, then we ask that you would remain professional. That's the number one thing. Communicate well in advance if you know that somebody's going to be on your jump seat, or if you know that you're going to be on somebody's jump seat. It may be polite to write ahead and say, I've been to one of the hot zones, I'm asymptomatic, and I would like a ride home, please. That gives the pilot in command an opportunity to say, sure, welcome aboard. If he has some concerns, he may choose to deny you. In either case, I would ask that we be professional, that we use as much common sense as possible, and that we take care of each other. We try not to let this divide us. And This is a time for us to take care of each other, to look out for one another's needs, and understand that each of us are trying to do the best we can and be as professional and polite as possible. And that speaks to the nature of the whole problem, right, and how we're managing this risk for pilots. That's why it was so important to give our pilots the ability to opt out of this flying, because each and every pilot has their own unique circumstance with their own health and the health amongst those or with those whom they live. And those are very unique, and we don't have time to evaluate those on a case-by-case basis. Therefore, it's important to put the pilots in charge of those decisions and the responsibility that follows with them. So whether it's about flying into a hot zone or going on a jump seat when you know you may be symptomatic or have uh, some illness, starting to feel like you know maybe you shouldn't go on the jump seat just as an abundance of precaution for our whole crew force. But like Pete said, it's about you know taking care of each other, being professional, and making smart decisions. And Chris, I know Pat and Pete will agree with me. We hear the pilots that have concerns for their family or their friends at home. And it is a big concern of ours as well. We've shared those concerns with management. We know not everybody's situation is the same. So for all of you out there, I want you to understand that all the things we do consider that, that those family events and your lives at home and outside of work. Some of the buzzwords are social distancing, don't shake hands. If you've been to China, if you've been to a hot zone, you know, you might want to consider wearing the mask when you're on the jump seat. There are mitigating strategies that pilots can do to help their fellow crew members. Yeah, they're professional courtesies, right? I mean, it's like on a 767 where we don't have 
an IRCD door, right? And you've got your jump seater sitting four feet behind you. It's professional courtesy not to be sitting there talking during those phases of flight or when the crew's trying to brief and be aware of your surroundings. And it's the same thing. Look, if you've just operated back from China, does it help the crew if you show up with a mask on? Do they feel more comfortable? It may be something you want to consider doing or ask them. You know, would you be more comfortable if I wear the mask? I mean, these are the types of things, types of professional courtesies we should be providing each other in this unique scenario. It's not going to be forever. We need to get through it in one piece, so to speak. Getting back to the OIM, Pat, do you have plans to update the current OIM, and and what do you think that might look like? Yeah, so the MEC has tasked the negotiating committee with engaging with the company again on either an updated OIM from version one or a standalone OIM as a second version. It doesn't really matter if it's an addendum or, or, or if it's a whole new OIM, but regardless, they've outlined some priorities there, and they, they make sense, right? The biggest thing that we see is that the original OIM was limited to mainland China, and as the, the one consistent thing here is the daily change in this development of the disease and the spread. And the OIM is not meant to treat anything outside of mainland China. So as you see Milan lit off and then all, all of Italy, and now you see certain places in Europe that are reaching CDC level three or level four, State Department travel advisories, we need to have an OIM in place that is as flexible as this thing is mobile. So it lines up, so it has the ability to flex in and out. So as China may be improving and it maybe gets itself a lowered CDC or State Department advisory, well, then the OIM may not apply there anymore, but it should begin to be applied in areas where the CDC has raised itself or the CDC advisory to a level three or State Department to level four and be able to flex in and out in these areas. And that requires some language where it says, hey, there's some objective criteria here that, that the union and the company agree on to be able to determine what those areas are. Another thing for FedEx is there's a lot of unknown and uncertainty for the company with this OIM because they don't know how many pilots are willing to go fly into China or into these other hot zones. And from a staffing perspective, that's not great for them, right? And you've seen the use of draft, and now they've done vacation cancellation for April, so that opens up AVA. So they're trying to get more pilots willing to go fly into these areas enticing them through higher pay. But we think we can solve that problem on the front end and have a designated, um, or at least the pilots give them the ability to affirmatively say, yes, they're willing to go into these areas or no, they're not. Of course, with that, it comes the decision of pilots to, again, accept a higher level of risk than pilots that aren't willing to do it. So there, therefore, there has to be some recognition of that higher level of risk. Essentially, any junior pilot under this OIM, we recognize there's limited ability, limited duration in what this thing can do for them because there's only so much RSA or or sick bank, and there's only so many vacation hours that they can tap into. Otherwise, they're utilizing makeup. That's in regards to pay protection. Exactly, yeah. So the pay protection aspect of it is limited for the most junior and the most susceptible, right, to, to have the negative consequences of that whereas the more senior pilots that have built up substantial banks have an ability to defer that flying for longer periods of time. And we see that as kind of the limiting factor on this first OIM. So we do have to address that, I think, in a real way that gives pilots longer windows of opportunity to be able to defer the flying. And again, it's an individual choice, and we don't want to be presumptive in that choice for our pilots. We want to give them all the tools available to be able to defer or to make a financial decision and a health decision given the circumstances, as these circumstances develop. And I think we would have put that in OIM 1.0 also, but we have a bargaining partner. 
That's right. Yeah, exactly. No, that's absolutely right. The company held its position on certain issues. You can imagine our very first proposal was a pretty significant number, right, for anybody going into these hot zones. The company was not interested in paying that. But now you can see on the heels of this thing that they're actually probably paying as much if, or potentially even more based off of what we're seeing with draft, volunteer, on top of the China override pay that pilots are receiving. It is a challenge. We have a bargaining partner here, and they have their concerns as well that need to be achieved on their side. They're going to be only willing to go as far as what their decision makers over there are willing to let them go. I mean, we receive a lot of excellent suggestions through PDR. I just think it's important that some pilots realize that we don't dictate in bargaining what the outcome is going to be to each one of these OIMs. We uh, recognize their ideas, and we incorporate things we haven't thought of that we think will work, and we have to cast aside others, of course, right, Pat? But, I mean, I think some pilots have asked us, why isn't that in there? And it's partially because we didn't feel like they were attainable within the time frame of the need to get the OIM in place. Yeah, no, it's an excellent point that in this case here, you're writing language for something you're trying to project at what the problem is. So the NOQ status and pilot six status. At the time, we have we didn't have any pilots going into the six status in the field after operating in the hot zone. So we have language in the first OIM that deals with NOQ, right? And there's two basically sentences, two paragraphs in there that deal with that. One is if you're uh, sick in the field and you go NOQ and you have the coronavirus, and the other one is sick and you don't have it. But now through actual PDRs and pilot input, we actually know that there's a, a better way, a more streamlined way to treat these pilots or the outcome of that NOQ status in the field. And we think there's a single solution there because actually what's happening is consistent among all the pilots, whether or not you are tested and tested positive for coronavirus or not. If you have a coronavirus, which fortunately we haven't yet had one, but we fully expect that at some point we may be faced with that and we have to have language there that deals with it. But in either case, there has to be a clear path for our pilots of entry into that process and then exit from the process. And knowing that they're not going to be hung out there to dry, they're going to get pay protected and they're going to have all the benefits that any pilot that would be faced with a sick in the field call or an extension of pay or extension of trip, excuse me, uh, would create for the pilot. Well, thanks so much, guys, for being here. Any final thoughts? We know that communication is key. So we've tried to up the rate of communication. We decided to do a coronavirus edition of the positive rate, and that was received very well. So for the time being, we're going to continue that. We'll ask that you uh, access fdx.alpa.org. Right on the top is the links for the OIM and the Q&A for the OIM that help explain the various portions of it. It's a uh, fairly quick and simple read, but there's vital information in there that if you have, it will make your life a lot easier. So I encourage people to go and look at that. I ask you to please keep the PDRs coming. We've gotten, as Pat said, some excellent suggestions, some wonderful information, and it helps us engage with the company better on the problems that the pilots are facing on the ground and in reality out there. Uh, and lastly, there's the coronavirus tab that's on the website. We have CDC, World Health Organization, FAA, all, all manner of guidance uh, there that help pilots in, engage and, and get the most current information. It's important to also get information that's accurate. Yeah, that's exactly right, Chris. And, and there's essentially three sources of accurate information for the pilots. You've got the union information that's being put out. 
the company information, and then any government information that may be coming out through government agencies, CDC and whatnot, you know, the alphabet soup agencies. But the risk is social media nowadays is, is our go-to, you know, I can do it on the fly and I'm on this group or whatever particular social media you enjoy reading through. But the risk there is there are uninformed positions that go out there and they become de facto position because it happens in a vacuum. And we're not out there trying to counter all those items that may show up. I can give you an example like the OIM. There was a lot of critique with regard to substitution versus phasing conflict. I know that there were some concerns from the pilots that came out of social media. But to be clear, there's substantial bargaining history behind this section of the contract with regard to substitution versus phasing conflict. In fact, there was even a grievance that was filed in 2011, and it eventually went to arbitration and the arbitration award in 2013. It's 1106 was the actual grievance. And again, that, that reaffirmed the company's position with regard to substitution versus phasing conflict. And that made it very clear, and the company was clear during the OIM negotiation that they wanted to treat the legality concerns, the legality issues with regard to country restrictions as a phasing conflict. Um, and that's up to the conflict input close window. And then after that, then it becomes substitution. Um, in the arbitration award, we lost. We lost that arbitration specifically, and the language is very clear in there. But the social media life that that took on of its own, people wanted to disregard and say the OIM was horrible because we gave this up. Well, there's significant history there, bargaining history and uh, grievance history, and the company has long established their position on this, and, uh, and they weren't going to give it up on the OIM. They weren't going to change their history that goes back to 1993 um, time frame. So that, those are the types of things we ask pilots to stay informed um, and really trying to go to the source. And if they have a question or something is confusing to them, just either pick up the phone and call us, do the PDR. Um, you've got a number of avenues there to seek information, accurate information. I think they've about covered it. COVID is here to stay, apparently. I had never heard of a coronavirus until probably around the January time frame, and now it occupies almost all of every day of my life. Being a FedEx pilot is an important part of my life. It's not my whole life, and I know that's true for our listeners. And I want them to know that the officers, the MEC, all the committees and the staff here that have worked so hard throughout all of 2020 on this issue, um, we're all focused on their health and well-being. Convenience is lower down the scale, but we're focused on that as well. And it's going to occupy a good chunk of our year, if not years to come. And we'll continue to focus on it. We're at, we appreciate the uh, input, and we look forward to providing them more information as we have it. Everything we get, we're trying to flow it out and make sure it's correct when we send it out. We're, we just don't want to be the first one to press. We want to get information out there that's accurate for everybody. So um, we appreciate their patience on that and their participation through PDR and being part of the process for solutions. Absolutely. And so everyone stay safe out there, look out for each other, take care of each other. But most importantly, your, your safety and security come first. Thanks again for coming, guys. If you have any questions, you can email me directly at fdxpodcast at alpha.org. And as always, be safe out there and we'll see you next time.